What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Laszlo Barabasi is one of the world's leading experts on the science of networks and uncovering what success really is In his new book, The Formula, Barabasi leverages the power of big data and historic case studies to reveal the unspoken rules behind who truly gets ahead and why. He outlines the 12 laws that govern this phenomenon and how we can use them to our own advantage. Unveiling the scientific principles that drive success, this trailblazing book offers a new understanding of the very foundation of how people excel in today's society. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. 10,000 makes three types of shorts for every way you train. The interval short that's built for versatility and mobility and perfect if you're into a bit of everything. It comes with an optional built-in liner that's the perfect compression without being too tight. It's made from super fine Italian fabrics. Ooh, fancy. So it's not just functional, but more comfortable without losing any support. And you need that support. The foundation short that's built for durability and perfect for anything with barbells, strength training, or even a weekend adventure. The distance short, my personal favorite, it's a super lightweight short, breathable and built for running. Also with a built-in liner, these shorts fade away while you run. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. 
Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Laszlo, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? Uh, very good. Thank you. Thank you, Sean, for doing this and for talking to me. Yes, of course. This is one I was looking forward to. We were just saying on the pre-call here, your new book, The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success, hands down one of the best books I've ever read. And I, I truly mean that. I was just saying how when I read at night, I was I was waking up my wife to share examples of, of different stories you wrote in the book. So truly a masterpiece, I think, with what you've uh, written here. Well, thank you very much. I, I really, I'm really glad that it worked for you. Yeah, so I would love giving the listeners a little bit more of an intro. Obviously, they heard the intro at the beginning of this, but how do you describe yourself? Uh, I'm a network scientist, uh, meaning that I actually got trained as a, a physicist, but then in the last, last 20 years, uh, my research has focused on networks and what you would call today big data. And what distinguishes us from the typical big data fields is that we're not only out there to make predictions, we are out there to understand the systems that we study. That is to understand the mechanisms and, the, and get the insights of what makes system work, whether that's the structure of the World Wide Web, whether we want to understand how a disease emerges in yourself or eventually how success emerges in an individual's career. Truly fascinating. I, I would love to know how someone gets into that field. What were you like as a kid? Where are you from originally? Because my <laughs> listeners can hear the accent. Sure. Uh, I'm from Transylvania, and it does exist. That's part of Romania. <laughs> and, and, and I'm a hang Hungarian native because uh, Transylvania is partly populated uh, by Hungarians and partly by Romanians. And I grew up there. I did much of my schooling uh, uh, there and in Bucharest and finished my schooling eventually in Budapest, Hungary, and then landing in Boston about 30 years ago. So you tell a great story in the book about when you were a kid. You, you describe yourself as more of an artist than a scientist, but a few weeks into high school, you took a, a quiz in your physics class, and this kind of changed everything. Can you share that story and how that really shaped your life? Sure. Uh, in high school, indeed, I was in a math and physics profile uh, class, but I was really interested in art, and I wanted to become a sculptor. And I was taking a bunch of classes uh, in addition to my normal schoolwork uh, at the separate art school to kind of prepare me eventually for a career in sculpting. But at the same time, you know, I, you know, I went to the normal competitions in math and physics. And to my surprise, I won the physics competitions in ninth grade and ended up going to the national phase uh, uh, and so on. But that didn't stop me from doing art. So I continued pursuing art in parallel. But as time went on, what I started to become good at, which is physics, started to fascinate me more and more. I started to hit the libraries and read about physicists and physics problems. And slowly, kind of that positive feedback that I got from my, uh, my success in physics turned me into a physicist and made me realize that 
where my Q factor is, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that during this interview, is really in physics and not in art. You mentioned that positive feedback. Was there any instrumental positive feedback you received around that time that really helped shape the path for you moving forward? Oh, absolutely. And this is actually has to do a lot with the, with the accident of life. So <laughs> one of the, one of the, uh, the tricks that uh, our physics teacher did in the ninth grade to kind of wake up, up to the importance of physics was to run in the first semester uh, quiz that virtually everyone failed, except me. I actually got a pretty good grade at it. And uh, but the reason I got a good grade at it is because we had some house guests, who, uh, a young couple who just graduated from university and was staying with us for a few months until they got their apartment. And the uh, Miklos, who was the, uh, the man from the couple, walked me through the night before the problem and the chapter that we were studying. And so I aced that, you know, that particular exam. And that was interesting because it made me believe that I know this stuff. And knowing, uh, kind of starting with this belief, I was winning one competition after the other. And this will come back actually very strongly uh, in my later research on success, as well as other people's research where we see how important performance is, but how important motivation is actually when it comes to generating performance. Yeah, I love that story because I think all the listeners right now can picture themselves as a as a younger child and maybe a little positive feedback they received. And that really helped shape who they are. So, I mean, we just mentioned the new book, The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success. I mean, this is a big, complex problem you tried to solve with this book. What led you to writing this? Well, it led kind of eight years of research in my lab. And you say and, eight you years? Know, eight years of research, right, uh, that was focused entirely on what we call career success, which is the topic of this book. And let me tell you how we arrived to this and how is this different from the many books on success that you may see out there. So we arrived to this because in my lab, we study networks. That is how big networks, social networks, Facebook, Twitter, uh, biological networks look like. And we started to think, how would actually a network impact the node in the system? That if you are a node in this Facebook network, you are one individual or on Twitter, or a molecule is a node in the cell, how would the words embedded in the network affect uh, its ability to achieve something? And that kind of led to this whole set of questions that what is success and how networks affect it? And then we soon realized that the problem is much bigger than networks. And we have to kind of rethink and redefine many concepts that we had about success previously. And let me put it on the table right now that this book has a big title, right? The formula and the universal laws of success, which is kind of asking a lot and, and promising a lot. What is different from the many other fabulous books written about success is that this is a data-driven book. And what do I mean by that? I have read many, many books on success that, was, that were written from a perspective of a successful individual, or they would detail the patterns that successful individuals have to achieve success. Uh, this, this, they were all very, very inspiring, but from a scientist, I have a problem with that. And my problem with that is that when we focus only on successful pro uh, people, then we have a data bias. In order to understand what makes you successful, 
I also have to look at people who did the same things as you did and may have not become successful. This is what I would call the placebo effect. So, so what we did in my uh, lab is that we actually started to systematically look at careers of scientists, of artists, and in many other areas, being careful of not only looking at those who achieve success, but looking at everybody who was working in the same space at the same time, all artists, all scientists, and therefore to derive the patterns and laws that characterize success in a, in a systematic and a data-driven way. Yeah, I'd love if you could dive into an example of that. I, I know in your first chapter, uh, you're talking about the World War I uh, fighter pilots. And I think this is a great example, really contextualizes what you mean here about some of those people who really differentiate themselves. A wonderful example is provided by Red Baron, the first World War pilot who is notorious for having shot down more than 80 planes during his career. And he's truly recognized for what he did in the sense that uh, many movies have been played about his life. There are uncountable number of books written about his career, and virtually he's the archetype of the first World War pilot. Yet, when we actually look at the data, there is René Fong. And René Fong was, uh, was fighting on the other side, on the Allied side against the Germans, and by all practical purposes, he probably was far more skilled than Red Baron, in the sense that he claims to have shot down more than 112 planes, which is about 30 more than Red Baron. And not all of them have been confirmed, but likely he did many more. And most important, he was never scratched, actually, during the war, never shut down even uh, during any of the uh, battles, while Red Baron has been several times shut down and eventually died in one of the combats. So, so the question what comes up, which, which is kind of uh, a good example for many, many other parts of our life, is that we have one person who has clearly a better performance than the other one, yet the other one with the lower performance or comparable performance really gets much of the credit. So, and one of the things that I'm trying to do in the formula is to try to understand the mechanisms by which René Fong is forgotten and Red Baron becomes the star of our thinking when it comes to a particular uh, activity. Yeah, no, I love that example. And what I would love to do now is let's set the framework. I really wanna know the difference between success and performance and how you define it in the book. Yes, that is critical. So. Performance is something that you do. How many planes you shut down if you are a fighter pilot, what you paint if you are a painter, how fast you run if you are a runner, what papers you publish if you're a scientist. Success, however, the way I define in the formula is how people relate to your performance, whether they observe it, whether they acknowledge it, and eventually whether they reward you for it. In other terms, your performance is about you, but your success is about us. And this is a key distinction because performance is really often hard to measure at the individual levels, but because success is really a collective measure that depends on your environment, it's much easier detectable to detect and therefore it becomes much more measurable. In other terms, it becomes a big data problem. 
Thank you for setting the framework with that. And I, I'd love to go through the five laws. And I want to start with the first law. Performance drives success. But when performance can't be measured, networks drive success. And one of the parts of this chapter I was most fascinated by was the child success rate in the Boston public schools and then also at the college level. Can you discuss that example? Sure. So we actually, they taught in school, and certainly I did, that it's my performance that will eventually determine my success. That the better I am at something, the more successful I will be in that particular one. And that is certainly true. For example, in, if you are a runner, the faster you run, the more successful you become. The problem becomes when performance is not accurately measurable. And let's face it, most of us work in professions where it's very, very difficult to really measure in an accurate way you know, what is our performance. Whether you are doing podcasts, as you are doing, Sean, whether you are a scientist who writes research papers, whether you're doing writing paintings or putting together deals, often it's very, very difficult to tell one person from the other one apart to work in the same domain. This is not to say that you cannot distinguish a good performance from a weak performance. Anyone, including myself, can easily say this is a good wine or bad wine, or this is a good singer or bad singer. The problem becomes uh, when we are faced with multiple good choices. So, so let's for a second then realize that not in all areas actually performance is accurately measurable. And the question is, how does this really eventually determine your success? And one of the most dramatic examples that I have experienced through that is really the schooling system in the United States. And particularly if I was confronted with that when my son was going to uh, college. I mean, we all have children or people in our environment who are kind of trying to get into the best college possible given their preparation. And that's exactly what I faced. So I started to look at the data to say how important it is for my son or it is for your children to go to an Ivy League, to the best school possible in your environment, whether that's actually a high school or whether it's a college. And I was surprised by the evidence in the research literature of how little that matters. That is, to, uh, and the qu deeper question is that, is it the school who makes you great? And if that's the case, then you have to go to the best schools possible. Or is it you who make the schools fabulous? And the evidence is really in this secondary realm. And the, the best example in this case is really about the college admissions, where uh, economists have systematically looked at where did students apply, where were they admitted in college, and where did they go, uh, and eventually, how much money did they earn 10 years after graduation? That is, they wanted to figure out to what degree the, the college which they chose determined their long-term success. And the surprising thing was that once you kind of factored in the, the exam scores that you had, that is like eventually your talent and your preparation, really, it didn't really matter where you graduated from. That is, that it didn't matter what was the school that you chose to graduate for. It didn't matter where, who else admitted you but you may have not gone there. The only thing that mattered in long-term success is that what was the best college that you applied to? That is, if you had the grades and you applied to Harvard and you didn't go in, 
didn't get in. Either you were not chosen, not admitted, or you chose not to go there. Your long-term success was equivalent to those kids who actually did go to Harvard. So that was totally mind-blowing, and it's not only for colleges. Similar studies were done at high school levels, asking the question whether the students who got in or did not get into the elite high school, did they do better or worse? And the answer is, those who just barely got in into a fabulous high school did no better than those who just didn't make it and they ended up going to a lesser high school. That is, these are what we call twin studies. Pick two individuals who are indistinguishable in terms of their performance, put them in two different environments, a better and a weaker school, and see what happens with them in the long run. And really, there is no difference between them. So the evidence is pretty clear. It's what you think that you belong to that really matters, given your set of grades and preparation. And therefore, if you apply to Harvard, it indicates that you think that you belong there. And that will eventually determine your long-term success and not actually going to Harvard. Yeah, I thought that research was absolutely mind-blowing. And I'm assuming you just saved a lot of these listeners a few hundred thousand dollars in potential uh, student <laughs> loan debt here. So, so thank you for that. You mentioned earlier your love for art, and you discuss art a great deal in this book. And uh, you can almost predict if an artist is going to be a huge success. I mean, I, I was absolutely fascinated by this study, this research that you did. Can you describe how you guys can almost predict the success an artist might have? Sure. And art is particularly important in this book because it's one of those areas where performance is inherently absent, which is kind of an odd thing to say. What I'm saying is that really it's impossible to look at the artwork and decide whether one artwork is better than the other one. It's worse than that. It's impossible to look at the piece and decide whether it's art or not. So, for example, I have in front of me a mug of co uh, coffee mug. Is this really a coffee mug or it's an artwork? Well, in my hand, it's a coffee mug. If you see the same mug actually at MoMA exhibited in a white pedestal, it suddenly becomes a very, very expensive piece of art. So this is what I'm saying is that it's impossible to look at the object alone and decide whether this is a valuable work of art or it's worthless. And in order to understand its value, for the artistic community and the community at large, it's really you have to look at who did this, what did that person do before and after in his or her career, where was this as well as the uh, artist exhibited before, and eventually what of his other works have sold and how much they sold for and so on. In other terms, the performance in art is totally determined by this contextual information, which we can perceive as a network. So this was the reason why we focused on art so much, because partly because I myself a collector and I work with artists and I'm curious, but partly because it gives the best example of huge success emerging in an area where performance is impossible to emerge. So what did we do? We ended up getting access, thanks to Mark Magnus Retsch, uh, a, a kind of an art historian and economist uh, in New York, to a fabulous data set that had the career of all artists in the last 40 years kind of spanned out. It wasn't actually their career. What they gave us is the exhibits in every single gallery and museum all over the world. Uh, 140 countries, more than half a million artist exhibits were contained in this data set. 
This allowed us, first of all, to reconstruct the career of an artist, saying where was she exhibited first, second, third, and so on, and how did she progress in her career? And from that, we could unveil the invisible institutional network that determines value in art. And what do I mean by that? If you want to place this mug in MoMA as an art piece, the curator would have to convince his or her board that this is valuable art that is worthy to be in that particular institution, which means that she would have to look at where was this exhibited before and where was the artist exhibited before. So, so now we started to look at where did the artists move between the institutions? So if you were exhibited in the Gaussian Gallery, where did you go next? Maybe you went to Pace Gallery, and maybe from Pace Gallery you went to uh, artists of Chicago and so on. And by looking how the artists move from institution to institution, we mapped out the network that really determines where the art is flowing in the art world. Why is this important? Because we were able to see what the MoMA curators consider as proper reference for them to admit a work in MoMA, that what other galleries they would look at to, to kind of scout works and to accept works from. And once we had this map, this was hugely predictive of artistic success. Because once we took any artist and we placed them on their, let's say, where were their first five exhibits, we were able to accurately predict that artist's career 20 years into the future. Why was that possible? It's because really the value in art is really in this contextual network of who believes in whom between the institutions and who is watching with whom. So it's a little bit, once I know the neighborhood where you are starting from, I could really trace into the future where would you be going next. And we were scaringly accurate, actually, about predicting an artist's career, whether that artist went up or, or it didn't go up and always stayed in the low-impact uh, 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 galleries. So you mentioned being rather accurate with being able to predict their success. Any artists that aren't very well-known right now, but you guys are predicting might be ultra-successes? Yes, that's right. So if you give me five, the previous five to 12 exhibits of that artist, no matter where they were in the world, we're able to place them on this map and say, how would that kind of artist access to higher level institutions change? And of course, it's a heartbreaking picture when you look at it, because what we see is that there's a very clear stratification in art. If by chance you start, career, you start your career high at the high level, top 20 institutions, top 20% institutions, and there are people who do that. They, they come out of grad school and art school from Yale or Art of Chicago, and all their, the first few exhibits they get were all in kind of like high-level institutions. What the data shows is that if you start high, you stay high, that your chance actually to drop from the top down is 0.2%, right? So <clears throat> two in a thousand people actually are, those who start high will actually fall down and not maintain that access to high-level institutions. However, those who start low show a completely different pattern. That is they, that there is a slow increase, but only a, about 10% has a chance of ever making it to the top uh, echelons. Most of them kind of enter a middle uh, area, and it's a very, very slow process. There is no locking at the bottom, but it's a very slow improvement towards the top. So in a way or the other, we are seeing that, that how the network determines your future success. And why is the network important? 
is because what we found in the network is that the network is broken into clear communities. There is one network in the center, uh, like one community in the center that contains MoMA and many of the big galleries, Tate, uh, Pompidou Center, and so on. And there are many islands. And if you are in one of these islands, and then you could be actually living in the U.S. and exhibiting, say, in New Jersey. But from the gallery perspective, you are an island. You could get lots of exhibits. You would, you would even have some sales. But there is no path from these islands to this middle continent where the value is. So what we see is that many artists spend their career having lots of exhibits, lots of events, good things happening with them, but never able to kind of make the transition to this middle continent where what to turn them into these really highly recognized artists because they are trapped in these local islands. I mean, you mentioned you're an art collector. Did this research influence any of your potential investments into some pieces? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in a sense that I, I, you know, one of the things I understood that intuition has very little to do with it. And this is very important, right? Because every time you start working with the galleries, as I do, the galleries would say, well, just follow your intuition. See what works for you and what resonates with you. And that's certainly a good advice and probably the best advice you can get because <clears throat> at the end of the day, the artwork that you want to have on your wall has to resonate with you. But that has zero connection to the future success of an artist, right? If I, if I would want to put together a collection whose value is maintained and goes up, I would not even look at the artwork at all. I would just look at the map and the position of the artist and go after that. That being said, my collection is really driven more by some local interest in Hungarian art. And, and therefore, I am not following my own map. I'm really following, actually, I, I look at my collection as a gesture towards the artist community. So, for example, I only buy art from artists who are still alive because I want to actually help them and contribute to their livelihood and help them to continue doing art. So I'm looking at this from an investment standpoint. Would you sell that data set to someone just looking purely investing, building their art collection? Uh, so just to be clear, the data set is not ours, but it belongs to Magnus, which is a company. And he, it is his purpose. The reason why he collected that was to kind of be able to sell it. It, it costs millions of dollars to actually collect and, and compile the data. What our contribution has been is working together with Magnus and several of my collaborators and making sense of the data and understanding within the data the mechanisms that determine artistic success. And this is really kind of the key of the formula or the pattern of the formula is, to, is that we're after mechanisms. We want to understand why things happen the same way, not just simply extract predictive power. Great. Thank you for clearing that up. I mean, we've had a great deal of different creatives on this podcast, and I'm sure they're always wondering how long is their creative ability going to last? So I know you really <laughs> uncovered. Do you get more creative as you get older? <laughs> oh, this is actually the fifth law of the book, of course. And and this is really my, my favorite one. And the reason it's my favorite one is because I just passed 50. And uh, and all previous research in scientific research shows that at my age, I should be a dead mood, meaning that my ability to make a discovery that would 
kind of uh, overcome anything that I have done before is less than 1%. And what do I mean by that? There's quite a bit of literature on what we call the genius research that looks at what age people have achieved what they achieved. And typically, they look at, as the name calls genius, like high-achieving individuals asking, when did the scientist who got the Nobel Prize did his or her discovery? When did the painter paint the most important painting or the poem, the most important poem, and so on? And what this research consistently shows is that innovation is a young person's game. And this is so extreme that Einstein once claimed that the scientist who does not make his or her contribution before the age 30, he will never do so. Now, and, and he was right to say that because when he looked around at the physicists that were working at the same time as he did, they were all in their tw 20s, mid-20s, maybe early 30s, when they made the big discoveries that eventually changed physics and quantum mechanics. So, so we went after this and we asked the question, what if we don't only look at geniuses, let's look at all of us, all scientists and other people in other areas, when do they do the most important thing they do during their lifetime? And when we dig into the data, we realized that this conclusion is utterly false, that only young people can be creative. And it's, it is false because what it's really looking at is that when are you creating and not when you are creative. That is, when we look at the productivity of scientists or people in other domains, we find that people tend to be much more productive when they are young. So you write most of your research papers in your 20s and your 30s. You paint most of your canvases in your 20s or 30s. You make many of your compositions, music, and so on that age group. And then with age, your productivity goes down, that you stop trying, you stop doing it for various reasons, family, uh, health, or you don't need to do it anymore, or, and so on. And when, when we pieced out the data, it turns out that every project in a person's career has exactly the same probability to be his or her biggest breakthrough. But because productivity is high early in the career, therefore it appears as if we would be creative early in the career. And in a way, innovation is a little bit like a lottery ticket, that every time you have a lottery ticket, you have roughly the same chance of winning that lottery. And if you buy most of your tickets when you're young, you're most likely going to win when you're young. And that's what we see. So in other terms, this is the fifth law of the book that, you know, that effectively saying success has no age. Success can emerge at any time of your career as long as you are persistent, as long as you keep trying. And one of my favorite examples in the formula is really the chemist who uh, was working at Yale and made the biggest discovery of his life after he was forcefully retired by Yale University. And, and he had to move to another university uh, in his 70s to actually do the experiment that led 15 years later to his Nobel Prize in chemistry. So, and, there are, and there's also this perception that if you want to do a unicorn, one of the successful companies in Silicon Valley, you have to be effectively in your 20s or effectively have to be a kid. But again, that's a misconception. When people look carefully at the 
age distribution of the founders of some of the most successful companies in Silicon Valley, they see a completely flat distribution everywhere from the 20s to the 60s. And so why do we have this perception? Well, first of all, because people are trying much harder than in their 20s. And also, if you succeed in your 20s, we tend to pay attention much more to you because it's a better story. And we tend to ignore your gray hair co-founder <laughs> without whom you will have not succeeded in that business. Yeah, no, this was a, a perception that I had. So it, it was really interesting reading that and, and discovering I was wrong in that perception. I know we jumped ahead to the fifth law. I thought that was a great time when talking about the artists and the creatives. But let's go back to the second law of performance mm -hmm. is bounded, but success is unbounded. What do you mean by this? And what was uncovered in that chapter? Sure. So uh, every time we actually started to measure performance, we realized that there are no big differences in performance. Let's start with running, right? Usain Bolt undoubtedly is the fastest person on earth. And, and no one questions his ability to run. Yet when you look at the competitions he participates in, he, as a winner, runs less than a percent faster than the loser, that is the person who comes in number two. And even though he's a fabulous runner, and I am not at all, I'm not a good runner, <laughs> he doesn't run 10 times faster than I do. And so what we see when it comes to running is that there are no huge differences in the speed that we have. And what is true for running is true for any other performance measure. That is that when we look at when we can objectively measure the performance of individuals, we're not seeing major differences between them. This is what we call the performance is bounded and has an important consequence. One of the consequences is that at the top, at the top performance le level, there are many individuals who are so close to each other in performance that they are impossible to distinguish. And in sports, we can distinguish them because we have chronometers. But lately, we even fail in sports. For example, if you look at the Rio Olympics, you will see that Michael Phelps, in one of the competitions, came in with a bronze medal that he had to share with two other swimmers, including a Hungarian swimmer. Why did they have to share the bronze medal? Not because it wasn't clear who arrived first, but because it, the Olympic Committee could not decide who was the fastest, because the the measurement tolerance of the swimming pool was three centimeters. That is, the, 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 the swimming pool was only measured with a three centimeter accuracy. And the speed that they swam with was so high that the time difference between their arrival was less than it takes to swim those three centimeters. So even if in sports we cannot decide who is the faster swimmer, then what happens in other areas where we lack chronometers? And so the performance is bounded means is that we need to be prepared is that no matter how good we are at something, at singing, at writing research papers or running, there will be many other individuals who are indistinguishable from us. Now, that's not true for success. When we're able to measure success, we find that the best or the one who's perceived to be the best is often rewarded not only a 1% more, than the second, but often an order or two orders of magnitude more than the second. When you look at the income level of individuals who do the same thing, there could be a factor of 10, sometimes 100 difference, like at CEOs, for example, of how much they earn. <clears throat> when you look at citations for, uh, for research papers by scientists, 
again, could be orders of magnitude different. When you look at how many, how many people listen to a musician's music, when you look at how many people read your books, orders of magnitude differences between the different create, uh, creative individuals. So what we find in general is that performance is bounded, very, very difficult to distinguish us, and success is unbounded. Those we perceive to be the best get rewarded hugely. Now, let's stay for another second on the performance bounded piece. And one of my <laughs> shocking uh, kind of revelations to me as I wrote the book was kind of reading about the Queen Elizabeth experiment, <clears throat> which showed how difficult it is to really distinguish people who are at the top. Queen Elizabeth is uh, a competition is a competition that has been taking place from 1937 in Belgium. And this is the star maker in classical music, in piano, in the violin, in voice, and even in composition. And it's been designed to be the fairest experiment to select the best of a generation who then gets contracts and possibilities to play in the most magnificent concert halls. They start with about 80 contenders every year. <laughs> they reduce it to 12. And then the last 12 individuals are asked each of them to play uh, uh, one after the other over six days, so two person per day. They're, when they play is randomly chosen, they all play the same music that is freshly written for that competition so no one can win by knowing the music ahead. Yet, when economists started to look at the success rate of the individuals, they found that they're really puzzling effect. Because it's chosen randomly when the, the last 12, the 12 finalists start playing, who is the first, who is the second, who is the first in a day, and who is the second in a day, the winner should be, could be anywhere. Yet, since 1937, no one has ever won on day one. Hmm. And, and most of the winners actually come from day four, five, or sometimes day six. And furthermore, when you actually piece the data, it turns out that your chances of winning is huge if you are in the last three days of the competition. It's also high if you are the second competitor that day and not the first one. And typically, it's higher if you are a man than you are a woman. So how is it possible that the expert jury, the best jury that really the world can get in classical music has these kind of biases in their selection and not able to pick up who is the best. And the reason for that has to do with the fact that performance is bounded. These are all fabulous performers. And when you are faced with 12 fabulous performers and you're not able to objectively say the difference, you start using other cues. And one other cue is really the immediacy bias. You remember the last one better. But most important, you actually pay more attention to the last one to the first, than the first one. And, and, and this immediacy bias really effectively determines the outcome. And my favorite anecdote with that was when, which is not in the book, I think, uh, is that when, I was, when this book was kind of in the proposal stage, about seven publishers wanted to publish it. And what I, I asked each of the editors, why did he like the book? And one of the editors said, you know, one of the reasons I love the formula was because it helped me understand the puzzle that I have had for years. That is, for years at a time, every, every spring, I interview a number of intern candidates, five to 10 every year. And I've been always puzzled by the fact that always 
the best candidate is the last to interview. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is not that the last interview. What happens in this case, as well as the Queen Elizabeth competition, is that you are setting the criteria of what you need on the first candidates. And by the co- time you come to the, right, uh, to the last candidates, for example, when it comes to job interview, you're asking the right questions. And when you ask the right questions, you get the right responses, and you have the impression that that's the best candidate. And this is totally present in many, many examples. I was the last candidate for the first faculty job that I ever had at the University of Notre Dame, and I was the one to walk away with the job. And therefore, I tell every student of mine when they get an interview for their dream job is to say, congratulations. The fact that you got the interview means that your performance is there, that you could be hired. But you have to prepare for the fact that there are about five to 10 other individuals who are indistinguishable from you. How do you get your job? Well, first of all, go ahead and find out when the decision is made and find every excuse possible to be among the last one to be interviewed, because that's your ticket to success if you are indistinguishable from the other ones. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the listeners who are going to be interviewing for a job soon reach out in a couple of years thanking you for that little bit of advice <laughs> that, that could really separate them from the rest in that field. <laughs> I hope they will, and I hope they will take this seriously, because this is a very strong effect. Uh, there is data that I mentioned in the formula that when it comes to your ability to become a judge in Spain, you would have to take an exam that runs from Monday to Friday. If you take the exam on Monday, you have 40% chance of becoming a judge. If you are taking the exam on Friday, you have 70% chance of taking a judge. That is, this is almost guaranteed that you will pass on Friday, while almost guaranteed that you will fail on Monday. (laughs) Absolutely fascinating. This is another reason I loved this book. And let's jump into that third law, previous success times fitness equals future success. What do you mean by that? And do you have any quick examples we could go over? Sure. So, So the big question, of course, is that if success is unbounded by performance is bounded, how do we get this unlimited success to people who are only less than a percent better than the other one? And that leads to, the, to this kind of success least success phenomenon that's really what I'm best known professionally. This is something that I discovered 20 years ago when we were studying the structure of the World Wide Web. And we and the community in general was puzzled by the emergence of a few huge hubs, websites that have millions of links that today would be Facebook and Google, while most websites have only a few links. And as we seek for an explanation, we realized that the explanation is very simple the reach gets richer. That is, the more links a website has, the more further links it will get because it's easier to find. And what is true for the web is generally true for all of us when it comes to our success. The more we have, the more likely that we're going to get more. And and the question, of course, and and this is really the fine detail, those people who succeed fabulously, do they do so because their performance is better and therefore rewarding performance or really purely a success generate success phenomena is at place. And there is a beautiful experiment in the formula done by a sociologist who now lives in Netherlands, where he showed that there is a pure success leads to success phenomenon. What he did is that he chose the, the 200 best Wikipedia editors out there based on their performance, how many edits they have made, 
And then he put them in two groups randomly. The groups were indistinguishable from each other because they were all fabulous editors and they were randomly chosen who goes in group one or group two. And then to group one, each of the members got an award, so-called Barnstar, that you can give it to Wikipedia for your high performance. And the other group, he just ignored. And he watched what happened. And what happened uh, three months later is that the group who, to whom he gave the award, the 100 editors, got 12 more awards. Hmm. But the one who didn't award got only three more. So this is actually a beautiful example because performance-wise, there were no difference between them. There were twin groups. Yet the one he actually chose to award has started this success, lead to success, and generate many more awards, while the others didn't. Why is that? Well, because the people whom he awarded became awardable. When it comes to your, your willingness to give someone an award and you have multiple choices, we often try to play safe. When we cannot see the difference between performance, we tend to give the to the people who have already been recognized by other communities because we cannot go wrong with that. So that first award is really key for you to become awardable. And this is not only Wikipedia. On Kickstarter, you know, if you give a first kind of donation to someone, you will significantly increase his or her chances that the Kickstarter campaign will actually be successful. And I show many other examples in the formula uh, coming out from different research areas of how important this awardability is, how important it is to kind of give this early award. So the bottom line is that success leads to success, but in order for that to happen, you have to kickstart your success. But of course, Quality still matters and ability still matters. And that's the second part of this law to say effectively previous success times fitness leads to future success. That is what we see is that often the things that compete for success, whether it's individual or a song or so on, have intrinsic quality that distinguish them from the others. And when we are able to measure that, that intrinsic quality, the fitness, what we find is that fitness times your previous success determines your future success. That is, objects with high, songs with high fitness kind of acquire success faster than those with lower fitness, but the kind of the snowballing of the success is present for both of them. Yeah, this was one of my favorite chapters and things to read about. Uh, a little saying I kind of try to lead my life by is momentum breeds momentum. And I think it's the same thing as success breeds success. You keep compiling those wins on top of each other. Let's jump into that fourth law and then maybe one or two more quick questions to finish up here. The mm -hmm. fourth law, while team success requires diversity and balance, a single individual will receive credit for the group's achievements. That's pretty fascinating research there. Yes, and that has to do actually with, uh, uh, with the fact that realistically in the 21st century, we never work alone. Mm -hmm. That is, anything that you want to achieve, you have to rely on others. In other terms, we work in groups. And in this uh, law, I'm trying to ask two questions. One of them, how do you put together a group that is really successful or has high performance? And then second is that once you're part of a group, how do you get credit for the work you do? And, and the first part is like, it's, when it comes to how you assemble a group, there again, we have some wonderful examples in the formula, particularly the work of, uh, you know, like how this, did Miles Davis kind of blue become the 
highest impact CD in jazz out there. And what was about the group composition that made that possible? And there's quite a bit of research out in that space. And to summarize briefly, what we are learning is that if you want to put together a high-performance group that, that they are able to achieve a task that is well-defined, you really don't have to put together a group of geniuses. Actually, the IQ of the individuals doesn't matter. Nor should you actually choose five Harvard MBAs because you think that they are the best at the task. Actually, diversity matters a lot. It matters that the group should be diverse with very different backgrounds and different takes on the problem. So that if <clears throat> so, so what really matters is not how motivated the individuals are, not how their high cue is, but rather how well they read each other's cues, that how well they communicate with each other. That's number one. Uh, number two, how even the communication and the diversity in the group. And third, the more women are in the group, the higher performance you get from them as a group. So, so this, the diversity and the presence of kind of different perspectives is key. But that's about high performance teams. Well, how about high success teams? Well, what's the difference between performance and success in this case? Well, performance is when you indeed you're designing the group to achieve a very well-defined task, like put a show together or organize a conference or design the next gadget. But if you're putting together a creative team to create something that has not been there before, like create a new software that didn't exist, completely different patterns are there. And there what we show is that diversity-wide may still matter, Really, the group should not function uniformly, but leadership matters. The successful groups are those where there is one person who does the lion's share of the work, and the rest of the people are just contributing to support that particular individual. In other words, creative groups that are aiming for success or high-performance groups that are aiming for really achieving some well-defined task function very, very differently. However, my favorite example or to me, part of this chapter really is not about how you make a team work, but how you get credit for the team's work. And that's something that we have to actually struggle a lot with because we are often, uh, as scientists, I'm often part of smaller or larger teams. And the question is, and, and people actually have very different contributions to the outcome of that particular work. There are, there are some who do the lion's share of the group work. There are some who bring the ideas. Others organize the group. Others may bring the funding and the resources to make it happen. And there may be part of the team who all they do is actually make sure that the donuts and the coffee are on the table in the morning meeting. Mm -hmm. And the question is, once the job has been achieved, who will get the promotion? And, and of course, we tend to think it's the one who worked hardest or the one who had the idea or perhaps the one who actually put together the team or so on. And one of the key features that we need to understand is that the credit of a team's work is based not on the work that people have done within the team, but on the perception of whose work that should be in. To be more specific, typically the credit goes to the individuals whose work outside of the team is closest to the team's achievement. So I always tell my students that if you and I write together a research paper on network science, that... <clears throat> To be honest, that's my paper because they don't know you and I have a career in network science and I have a track record in that. So for you to actually 
get credit for our joint work. You have to go out and convince the community that this is your work, and you have to publish many other papers in that particular area. And, and there are cases where credit allocation can go really wrong. And, and perhaps the most heartbreaking example of the book is the case of, doc, uh, of one particular prediction we made, where we used some of the tools that we developed in my lab to decide who should be getting a Nobel Prize for a paper uh, uh, that was written by multiple authors. And in one, we always got it right, except in a few cases. In one case, the, our algorithm insisted that the credit for a team's work should be going to an individual that not that he didn't get the Nobel Prize, but we couldn't find him anywhere. <laughs> and <laughs> then we started looking what happened to him, and he wasn't actively working any research institution there were, uh, or uh, research lab, but there was no evidence of him passing away either. It's possible that you don't get the Nobel Prize because you passed away before the prize has been awarded, but there was no evidence for that. And eventually we found him. He was driving a Toyota courtesy van in, uh, in Alabama. That is, <laughs> if your car broke there, he would drive you home after you drop your car off and maybe pick you up to, uh, to have the fixed car taken home. And so the question was, why would our algorithm insist that he deserves the Nobel Prize? And the reason for that is because he was a scientist one day, and he, discovered, he made a very important discovery. He cloned the gene that kind of can turn cells fluorescent and that are used widely in research, in research labs today. But then, but then he didn't get the funding to continue his research, and he got so disappointed that he quit. But before he quit, he mailed the genes that he actually isolated before to two individuals. Who were these people? These were the people who actually ended up getting the Nobel Prize. And so this was a case, actually, where the performance of the individual was there. He was part of a teamwork because they kind of acknowledged him in the research paper once they used his genes. But he was not part of the network that really kind of eventually determines the reward. So this is a wonderful example of how we talked earlier about how important networks are in the art space, but they're equally important in the science space. And I would go further to say these network effects are hugely important in any areas you work in, whether it's business, whether it's education, whether it's science or, or even uh, marketing, uh, because really, Credit is based not on the performance, but really based on the perception of the performance. And when it comes to teams, we always select one person to give the credit to. And in order, if you want to be that person who walks away with the credit, you need to understand what are the mechanisms that drive that process. Laszlo Barabasi, the author of The Formula, The Universal Laws of Success. I'm not sure if we've had another guest on the podcast who delivered that much great, incredible knowledge to the listeners. I can't thank you enough. Where should the listeners follow you? Where can they pick up the book? Well, uh, first of all, we have a website called formula.barabasi.com, but I'm on Twitter under Barabasi uh, handle and are everywhere in social media. And to be honest, hit Amazon, get the book, and tell me what you thought about it. Because for me, it was huge fun to write this book. And I wrote it because 
I felt that the research that we were doing in my lab has fundamentally changed the way I advise my students and my children about their career. If I did well in the writing, you should have that change perspective and you will have, you will change the way you actually talk to your uh, environment about success. Laszlo, I can't thank you enough. And I look forward to talking to you again, because I could sit down with you for hours. So thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you, Sean. I really uh, love this opportunity. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I have ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, 
head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.